0: Thanks for listening. The following audio is a teaching from Calvary Tucson's Young Adult Ministry, Ignition. For more teachings, information, or if you'd like to support our ministry, please visit us online at ignitiontucson.com. We pray you're blessed by the message. So Father, we thank you for the blessing and the gift of your word. And we ask God that you would lead us in truth that you would give us the Holy Spirit as you're faithful to provide those to those who ask you because you're a good father. So we ask, Lord, that you would give the Spirit generously to us, give us understanding to your scriptures, and give us hearts that are moldable, Lord God. We want to be moldable, flexible, and allow you to really come in and, uh, and, and move around things, Lord, that need to be shifted and moved and rearranged and changed and that you would use your word to do that, Lord. We know that the word of God is alive and active, sharper than a scalpel even, Lord. You can get in and do heart surgery uh, within us uh, using your word. And so we surrender and submit ourselves to you. We, in a sense, lay ourselves on the operating table and, and ask for you to do a work in us as we look at Genesis 32 tonight. And it's in Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. Alright, well, Two Camps. That title of tonight's message is Two Camps, and that'll become evident as to why as soon as we start reading this, but it's been about 20 years since Jacob has been in the land of Canaan, in the promised land. He's been away from home that long, 14 years he spent serving Laban, seven years for each bride. It was his dowry. He had to work seven years for each wife, and he only wanted one wife, by the way, and he got um, tricked into to, to getting two wives and having to work twice as long. Then he spent another six years working for Laban, but God really blessed him that last six years, basically gave him Laban's wealth of all the cattle. We remember that as well, right? And so it gets to the point where hostility is high, animosity is high, Jacob, it's time to go, and then the Lord even gives Jacob a vision and says, hey, it's, it's time to leave Haran. Go back to your home country. So Jacob, understanding that things with Laban were dicey, sneaks off in the middle of the night without Laban knowing, when Laban was actually out of town. And Laban catches up to to Jacob with this ill will, ill intent. And the Lord protects Jacob supernaturally. We looked at this a few weeks ago, right? And the Lord came to Laban in a dream. He's like, you better watch it. You better watch how you deal with my boy. Don't speak good or bad to him. Very, be, be, be very careful to choose your words carefully as you talk to Jacob, as you address him. And so Laban, as much as he wanted to harm Jacob, wasn't allowed to because the Lord stopped him there. And so they had some words. They exchanged some words at Mizpah there, and they ended up parting ways. Not, I wouldn't say peaceably, but un- with the understanding that they were not friends. <laughs> Unlike the Mizpah necklaces that you get for your friend, Right? Uh, this was actually the opposite. They parted ways. And in tonight's chapter, Jacob continues his return home. But what exactly is he returning to now? 20 years is a long time. And as far as we can see, there's no indication that Jacob received a whole lot of news from home at this time. He does know, as we'll see, that Esau is alive and that he's living in Seir. However, is his, are his parents still alive? How will Esau receive him? Does Esau still want to murder Jacob? This is all a mystery to Jacob at this point, And it's in this chapter that we'll see how Jacob navigates these uncertainties as he makes his way back home. And he will also, on this trip, encounter God in a special way. So we'll see that. So let's jump right in, in uh, verse 1, of chapter 32. It says, Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Nahaneam, which means two camps. There's two camps here. Now, Jacob, as, you guys have, as we've followed the life of Jacob together, we've seen that he's had several visions from the Lord. Bethel was the significant one, right, where he saw this ladder in heaven open and the angels ascending and descending upon this ladder, that ladder representing Jesus, we, we come to find out later. We also know he had a vision just before he left Haran. The Lord came and and gave him a vision of how the Lord would make him rich through the spotted, striped, speckled flocks of Laban. And he also told him in that vision, hey, I'm going to protect you uh, and you're going to leave Haran and you're going to go back home. Well, this is another vision that Jacob has and no less significant than the other two. You see, as Jacob, I picture him pacing, he's worried about this confrontation, potential confrontation with Esau and I, I imagine him stressing about this. And then it's as though he looks up and, and looks at his camp, all the vulnerable people, if Esau were to come and attack, and the Lord opens his eyes to see a camp of angels, to see an angel army in the midst. He says, there's two camps here. And it's not that the angels were like hanging out around the campfires making s'mores and singing songs, right? Right? This word for camp means an encampment of soldiers. Like an, there's an angel army in their midst. And so what he sees here is something similar to what God showed Elijah before the Syrian army. And that is, hey, yes, you have some daunting circumstances that you are facing, but look at the spiritual. I have a whole host of angels who are willing and ready to fight on your behalf if necessary. Even tonight, there are two camps right here. I see one, but there are, there are, there's a spiritual realm tonight that's, t- that's around us. There are angels. There are even demonic forces, and, and they're doing battle that we don't even know that we're not even aware of. And I think to us, the encouragement is that we should not forget that there's a spiritual side to every physical circumstance that we face. Do you realize that? The issue that you have at work with that coworker, there's a spiritual side to that. The daunting task of having to address uh, your peer group uh, because you're a Christian and they don't like the values that you hold to, that you adhere to, do you realize there's a spiritual aspect to that? And I believe that the more you represent the kingdom of God, the more God's like, I got your back. Does it always work out for your victory? No. Sometimes the Lord allows people to go through persecution, right? But nevertheless, there's a spiritual aspect to the physical circumstance. And if it's in obedience to God, and if God has your back, then whatever that outcome, be it convenient or not convenient for you, it will work to the victory of God's kingdom. Because God has, if He wants to deliver, He has a host of angels to back you. If, if the greater work is to let you go through some difficulty, He's going to allow you to go through that difficulty. But don't underestimate that there are two camps at all times around us taking place and that God is working things to his spiritual victory, the victory of the kingdom. Things might seem bleak, but the spiritual perspective can seem drastically different. Just like it was for Elijah when God opened Elijah's servant's eyes to see the army surrounding the Syrian army. You might not be as fortunate to see the physical angels. I would love to see that. But nevertheless, that doesn't mean they're not there, okay? So remember that as you face difficult issues and circumstances. Jacob was stressed here, and the Lord comforts him with this vision. God's, he's like, God's army is here with us. I thought there was just us, but there's two, this is actually two camps here. Verse 3, it says, And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I might find favor in your sight. So Jacob comes up with his plan. He calls a few of his messenger servants and he's like, Look, we didn't exactly end on friendly terms last time we saw each other, Esau and I. So I want you to go ahead of me and, and tell him, Look, Jacob's coming into town. But he does not wish you ill will. He's coming peaceably. And he's not looking to get anything or take anything from you. The Lord has provided all that he needs. He just wants to have your favor. He just wants peace with you. He sends these messengers to go be messengers of this peace. And as it all unfolds over the next few chapters, as he interacts with Esau, we'll see, he's not trying to be best buds with Esau. In fact, it's almost like he, in the next chapter, that like, like he is avoiding getting too close to Esau. When seeking peace, when reconciling, some, for some relationships, guys, the healthier way of reconciliation is simply by seeking peace, but not necessarily restoring everything back how maybe they want it, or how you thought it was going to be, or how it originally was. You've probably heard it said before, reconciliation doesn't always equate to full restoration, okay? Sometimes it's wise to just say, hey, I just want you to know I forgive you, I love you, there's no ill will, and, I, and to receive that in return and then to part ways in peace without the expectations, okay? So that, that can be a really healthy model for, for reconciliation. We actually see that modeled here by Jacob in the next few chapters So the messengers head out from Jacob with this message of peace, and they return pretty quickly here in verse 6. Let's see. It says, And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed, and he started stressing out. And he divided the people who were with him, and the flocks, and herds, and camels. Into two camps, thinking if Esau comes to one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. Now, the narrative gets a little bit unclear as you're processing this information. Either one, the messengers reached Esau and Seir and told Esau, hey, Jacob's coming. And in response, Esau's like, okay, I'm going to get my 400 guys and I'm going to go meet Jacob which doesn't look good, right? If you're going to greet someone peaceably, you don't rally 400 fighting men to go with you, right? That's not exactly the the welcoming party. Or the other option is perhaps, some commentators think, the servants were going to meet Esau and as they were on their way, they see Esau approaching with 400 men, perhaps having already heard Jacob was coming, having already gotten wind that there was this entourage and Jacob was in charge of it. So at this point, Esau might have heard this and been thinking, what is my brother's intentions? What is he intending to do? He was blessed with the ownership of this land, with the inheritance. Is he going to come and try and kick me out of the land and take it all? So Esau might be feeling this way as well. That could be the the other option, seeing as how the, the messengers didn't really give Jacob anything to go on. I'd be like, well, did you talk to Esau? Was he angry? How was his tone when he called the 400 men to come with him, you know, they didn't give him anything, and he's just freaking out. So either way, it doesn't look good, and Jacob's rightfully concerned. However, he seems to quickly forget God's promise to protect him. In the heat of the moment, when the circumstances are flying at him, he quickly forgets the angel armies that are around him. And isn't that the the same with us? Like it's one thing to know and believe the word of God. But man, when conflict starts flying at you and your emotions start taking over, it can be, your, your response can be different than that of faith. And a lot of people will get on Jacob for responding out of fear here. I don't necessarily think he's completely to fault. Um, but nevertheless, he quickly forgets the promise of God's protection and he's distressed and he's fearful One verse that I love in the Bible is that God knows that we are but dust. Like He understands how fragile we are and how emotional we are. He gets that. Um, But I think, for Jake, from Jacob's perspective, I think it's commendable that he is a proactive man, isn't he? We see that from his history. We see he was proactive in attaining the blessing from his dad. He was proactive in getting the riches of Laban. Like he was a man who would put his hands to the plow and would work. He wasn't inactive. In fact, a lot of people could learn a lesson from Jacob. These inactive people who sit on their hands, who always need prodding by the Lord to get up and do something. That was not Jacob's problem. Jacob's problem was more that he would get ahead of God. That he would be too busy. That he would start scheming and making his own plans. And do something maybe God didn't even call him to do. That was more Jacob's personality. And as this chapter unfolds, we'll see that what God is showing Jacob, what God will show Jacob on this special encounter, is not to be proactive, but to simply be still in trust that God is God and that he is in control. We'll see that coming up here, but um, Jacob does what he does, right? And he starts to split up his camp and uh, starts dividing his company between Really, probably between those he likes and those he doesn't like too well. The herdsman that he was planning on firing, he's like, hey, I got a job for you. I want you to go to the front of the pack here with this one. Okay, special assignment for you. It's going to be a safe trip. Just keep moving in that direction. If you see an angry mob, just uh, greet them. Who knows? I don't know what will happen. But his thinking is, hey, if if these guys get attacked, we'll at least be able to escape. So I wouldn't want him in part of that first envoy. Like, what's up, Jake? I thought we were cool, man. You're just going to send me out like chopped liver? Uh, so, verse 9 it says, And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham, and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred, that I might do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of, of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. Oh, but you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sands of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So in the midst of his distress, In the midst of his knee-jerk reaction to start scheming and planning, he just goes to the Lord in prayer. And really in doing so, he gives us a model prayer, a really good example for our heart and for what prayer ought to look like for us. If you notice, first off, what does he do? He humbles himself before the Lord. He says, I am not worthy to receive all these amazing blessings you've given me. And then he reminds himself of God's faithfulness and God's promises. God, you've been so good to bless me. I, I crossed this, this river this way with just a staff. And Lord, because of you and your goodness and faithfulness, I'm coming back with all of this. And not just one camp, but with two camps. I've got an angel army on my side even. And I love that because this is the posture, guys, that we ought to have, that we have to strive to have as we come to the Lord at church to worship, as we come to the Lord in prayer, in our prayer closets privately, when you sit down to read your Bible by yourself, that we would be able to sit before the Lord and just say, God, I, I'm nothing without you. I am totally dependent on you, Lord. Every good thing that I have has come from you. And to give, give credit where credit is due. That God is the reason that we are able to even be here tonight and have the health to sit and to seek him. God is the reason why we even have a relationship with him. He has invited us into this. This is Jacob's heart. This is his mentality. God, it's all you. This is this has been you. And which is showing great maturity for Jacob because again, he is a man of action. A man of plans. If anyone could could ha- put faith in their own plans and their own wit, wouldn't it be Jacob, the schemer? But he's sitting here acknowledging God. It's it is all you. I need you to help. I need you to deliver. And then the the example of prayer continues to be such a great model when he says, Lord, I fear. I fear my brother. I'm afraid right now. But you said that you would protect me. Guys, this this is such a huge example for us in prayer. That we would be able to go to the Lord and say, Lord, this is how I'm feeling this is what I'm struggling with internally and emotionally. But I also know this is what your word says. This is what your promises say to us. You see, guys, it's important to understand that our emotions, they are a part of who we are, of our, of our makeup. And as I said before, the Lord understands that you are an emotional being, that I have emotions, that we have these knee-jerk reactions. And the answer to facing difficult emotions is not to stuff them, is not to shove them away or stoically just cut them out of our lives and just be emotionless. That is not the answer. The answer is to acknowledge our emotions but then bring them into subjection to what the Word of God says. That's exactly what Jacob does here. I am afraid, but you have promised to protect me. You see, our our emotions are valid, but they are also very fickle. Don't you realize that? You see that? Like your emotions, we are up and down. We can be roller coasters. Though it's a part of who we are, our emotions can be manipulated. They can be manipulated by things you eat and drink. They can be manipulated even greater, though, by lies. You can feel things, you can feel emotions very intensely because of lies. And that is the unhealthy aspect of our emotions. But the Word of God is the unchanging truth that keeps us grounded. So that's why it's important that we recognize what we're feeling, but then bring those emotions to the Word of God and try to subject them to what the Word actually says. For instance, the lie that Jacob was hearing, guys, was that Esau was going to avenge him and all that, how Jacob wronged him before, that Esau was going to kill him and kill his wives and kill his family, kill his offspring, and in doing so, destroy the promises of God, destroy the nation of Israel, destroy the very plan of salvation. This was the weight involved with the fear that Jacob was, was facing. But it was also a lie. And that lie caused Jacob to feel fear But God's word says, God's word says, Jacob, I will protect you. Jacob, your offspring will be as the sands of the seashore. You will be blessed. And through you, I will bless all other nations. Through you will be one who is born of the seed of the woman who will destroy the work of the enemy and the work of sin. This is what God's word said. And so as Jacob reminds himself of God's word, he's able to deal with the emotion of fear, the response to the lie, and and tell himself to respond emotionally to what the truth says. And what what are the appropriate responses in light of the truth? It's in it's joy. I remember your promises for me, God. It's encouragement, encourage. I remember you said you would protect me. That you were going to get me back to the promised land. I remember these things. And so he's able to bolster himself with the promises of God's word. And I I just want to ask you, what lies frequently overtake your emotions? Let me ask it this way. What emotions do you frequently deal with day to day? And are they rooted in a lie or are they rooted in truth? I think that's a question we all need to ask ourselves. This might be good homework for you this next week to take some time and sit down and think of the emotions, particularly the turmoil that you faced over the last week. What were they rooted in? Were they rooted in lies? Or were they rooted in truth? Did you respond? And most importantly, what does God's Word have to say about the root of those emotions? Some people... Believe the lie that God won't forgive them, that God can't forgive them because they've just done too much sin, too much wrong. They've gone too far. And that's a lie. And that lie leads you to feeling ashamed, the strong emotion of shame, which people carry for far too long in their life. But what does the Word of God say? First John 1, 9, If you confess your sins, He's faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you of all unrighteousness that God will separate your sins from you as far as the east is from the west, that though your sins be as scarlet, I will make them as white as snow. The Bible says God is able and willing and ready to forgive your sins if you come to Him in repentance. Just like that, you can be washed clean. And, and, And so according to the truth, rather than feeling emotions of shame, you should feel emotions of refreshment, emotions of reprieve and relief, as you know, you can be forgiven right now before the, in the eyes of the Lord as you confess those sins before Him. And it feels good, guys. It feels good to be forgiven by the Lord. It, it says in Acts that you have to repent and be converted so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. It's refreshing when you have that realization that I can can fix this conflict in my heart right now by simply asking God for forgiveness. Maybe it's the lie that God doesn't love you. That's another very, very common lie that people go many years believing, perhaps because their parents mistreated them, their parents didn't love them properly, or their friends had rejected them. And so they believe the lie that God does not love them. And so what is the emotion? The emotion is feeling worthless, feeling like your life doesn't mean anything. But guess what? That too is a lie. What does God's Word say about that? Well, it says that nothing can separate us from the love of God. It says that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that, the grave, that, that God demonstrates His love for you that while you were a sinner, Christ died for you. It says, like the psalmist said, precious are His thoughts towards you. That He knew you in your mother's womb. He knitted you personally in your mother's womb. And your life was His idea. And so in putting on the truth of God's word, you can kick aside the feeling and emotion of worthlessness and begin to feel the appropriate feeling out of an appropriate response of the truth, and that is you have tremendous worth. You have value and you have purpose. Even if everyone in this life rejects you, God does not because God made you and has a will for you and a plan for you and you have value in His eyes. One more, one more example. I'm going to flip this thing on its head for a second here. You might, be, you might be listening to this lie and having a lot of emotions tied to it. And that is, A, you don't have to obey the Word of God to be saved. It's all about grace, right, brother? You could just keep on sinning. At Maybe I'll just do a deathbed conversion, but just keep living the way I'm living. And you might be feeling good as a response to that lie. Maybe even brazen in your sin. But I want to tell you, that's not... An emotion that's rooted in truth. What does the word of God say? Don't be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever man sows, sows that he will also reap. Right? How about this verse here? If we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation for the adversaries. The devil's telling you the lie to make you nice and comfortable in your sin. Oh man, it's all about grace. I don't have to do a thing. I don't have to obey the, obey the word of God. And like those, you guys know what Kobe beef is? Like those Kobe beef cows with getting the massages and drinking sake all day so their meat's nice and tender, the enemy's fattening you up, making you feel nice and good, but your, your feelings are tied to a lie. They're not tied to the truth. And for some people, The truth of God's word won't bring comfort necessarily. It will bring fear. And that's a good thing. It will bring conviction. It will bring godly sorrow. And that's a good thing because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But do you see what I'm getting at here? Jacob took his emotion. That was valid, but he aligned it with the word of God. And he received courage.